This is the Viva Albertos podcast. My name is Craig Edwards. I'm the managing editor at Viva Albertos, and today we have a special guest. Uh, Howard Megdahl is a writer and author, and his latest book is called The Cardinal's Way. Uh, look for it in a store near you or Amazon or wherever, but uh, welcome and congratulations, Howard. Thank you very much. It's uh, a long time coming, but I'm thrilled to be able to discuss it. I I have read the book. I really enjoyed it. I I thought it took uh, a few interesting angles on uh, exactly how the the Cardinals have been built. Um, You focused a lot on on continuity, and uh, the way you sort of did that was was to focus on, on characters. I mean, you talk about the DeWitt family, you talk about uh, George Kissel, Red Shandies, and um, I, I was just, I was curious if uh, you felt that, that that sort of continuity, is is that a difference maker? Is there any one difference maker that made the, the Cardinals different or unique? Well, listen, it may not be the only thing, but it is definitely something that separates the Cardinals from every other major league team, and, and really almost any business you can conceive of. You know, just to have that type of intellectual through line in the basics of the way things are run, both from the on-field player development perspective along with the analytical perspective. I mean, it's just really significant in and of itself. And so, you know, to me, that was central to telling the story. You know, when you have... Branch Rickey literally created the farm system. And Branch Rickey's right-hand man and first farm director, so therefore first farm director of any kind in the major leagues, was Bill DeWitt Sr. And Bill DeWitt Jr. learned the game you know, directly from his father, grew up around the game, grew up learning essentially from someone who very much followed the game the Branch Rickey way. And so have that person uh, eventually be owner of the team and implementing these strategies uh, is sort of just this remarkable coincidence for, for a number of reasons, not least of which Bill DeWitt tried to buy any number of other major league teams. And this easily could have happened in other towns other than St. Louis. But because it happened in St. Louis, because the Cardinals are the team he ended up with, you get that kind of continuity continuing. And uh, that to me alone was something remarkable and something significant. But I also do think it's an inherent advantage. He was able to build on some things that were already here. Now the Cardinals, uh, sort of, in talking to you, they seem to walk a bit of a fine line when they're talking about how what they're doing is special or different. And for the most part, they, they try to steer away from saying that the Cardinals are special because they do this and they have the Cardinals way. Did you feel like it was sort of your job to let everybody else know that what they were doing is in fact a little bit different and it is unique? Yeah, well, I I think that's almost self-evident when you look at the success that they've had and, um, you know, it's it's really hard to find a team that has succeeded as much as they have in baseball history, with the exception of the New York Yankees, who have a lot of systemic uh, reasons of their own 
to be successful, to be particularly successful, you know, um, I, I just, a less fancy way of saying that is lots and lots and lots of money. And so in the case of the Cardinals, there was this real question in my mind. It's what led me to the project in the first place. You know, you know I uh, grew up in South Jersey. Uh, I live in New York now. It's not like there was a regional reason for me to be uh, drawn to the Cardinals per se. Uh, but I wanted to get a handle on the reason for this. And I came out to do a long-form story on them uh, a couple of years ago and spent some time with Bill DeWitt and some time with Mo and some time with Dan Kantrovitz and came away feeling like, well, you know, I had a 5,000-word piece that had the what of what they were doing, but not the how and the why. And I thought the more interesting part would come from the how and the why. And I, I remember telling Bill DeWitt I wanted to write a book. And, uh, you know, I basically made it my business to move forward on that idea as soon as I could. And actually, that so that's the door. Hold on one sec. Howard is in a hotel, and he's getting a mini fridge. Uh, we'll see how long that takes him. We may just edit this out and pause it. Um, just from my own commentary, reading the book, uh, it, it does a really great job of, of telling the stories of the individuals in the Cardinals organization. Uh, it, it starts with, with George Kissel, who is a, a very important figure uh, in, in the Cardinals system. And uh, one of the more fascinating things was that he had the opportunity to join the, the Major League Club uh, as a coach, but uh, decided to turn down the opportunity to stay in the minor leagues just because he liked the situation dealing with young people and uh, dealing um, especially with, uh, with where he was, and it was a better situation for his family. And so you get a lot on George Kissel, you get a lot on Red Shandies, you get a lot on Bill DeWitt Sr., um, and one of the things that, that carries through is that the, the Cardinals, perhaps the, the one thing that they have done extremely well over the years is that they've, they've hired very well. And I think that that's something that, that, that goes, goes away, a ways back. And it's something that uh, Bill DeWitt inherited uh, a little bit with, uh, with Walt Jockety. And Walt Jockety hired Tony LaRussa, um, brought in John Mosaloc. And John Mosaloc had brought in a lot of, a lot of really talented, important people. Uh, Jeff Luno, who's now with the Astros. Sig, uh, Sig Madoff, who's also uh, now with the Astros. And there's actually uh, a handful of people that are featured in the book that are, that are with the Astros. And Dan Kantrovitz is a guy who's in Oakland. And these are guys that the Cardinals have hired in the last 20 years who either are now general managers, presidents, or uh, very likely will be in the future. I'm here, by the way. All right. Yes. Um, so um, just I was talking a little bit about just uh, how well the Cardinals have done in hiring over the years, and uh, one of the sort of... Uh, downsides to that situation is that good people get hired away and that's something that that's happened a lot to the cardinals and um especially in the last uh last you know three to four years and it it's it's something that has an impact 
for the future. And I was just curious if you thought that that run of, I don't know if you want to call it luck or, or skill in hiring, is, is that something that, that can continue? So the final chapter in the book is the indispensable cardinal. And it was wrestling with just that question in my mind, and not just in my mind, but talking to, uh, talking to Bill, talking to Mo about this, talking to those who remained and those who had left, uh, like Jeff and Sid as well. And I think it comes down to, and, and, and you spoke to, there, there was some inheriting, uh, but a lot of this is from Bill and Mo on down, being able to hire the right people, being very smart about it. And something that baseball does not suffer from is a brain drain overall. You've certainly seen very, very bright people in the Cardinals organization, whether it's Jeff and Sig, you know, or even, you know, people don't talk about it enough. Uh, you know, Dan Cantoritz leaving uh, to go to Oakland where he got the assistant GM uh, slot. You know, Dan, Dan in a lot of ways is sort of set up as a GM in waiting. And uh, I'm not sure that you have that in St. Louis right now whenever Mo decides, um, you know, that he's ready for a different challenge. So that, that's significant and that's, you know, a, a downside to the Cardinals' success, like you said. The flip side is more and more smart people than ever before are getting involved in baseball and are trying to get into the game. And in a way that, you know, in, in Jeff and Sid's story, they were very, very bright people who desperately wanted into baseball, and there was really no pathway. Now there's nothing but pathway for intelligent people as teams across baseball are staffing up on the analytics side. And so I think it won't be impossible for the Cardinals to continue to bring bright people into the organization they have and will, um, but it won't be this group of people. And so inherent in that, whenever new people come into the system, there's a question of A, a lack of continuity, and B, a question of whether they can succeed the way those who came before them did. And that's to be determined. I think that uh, one of the interesting things about the Cardinals, both on and off the field, is you get a sense of uh, the availability of upward mobility for for their employees and uh, for their players. You know, you see the successes of you know late round draft picks, that sort of thing, and that sort of encourages younger players to say, you know what, it doesn't matter if I didn't get the big signing bonus, I, I can still, you know, work my way up and potentially make the major leagues. And and it seems like they had done that for uh, for a while uh, in, in the front office as well, um, promoting internally. And I think that one one of the, I'd say one of the, interesting things about the Cardinals organization, and I don't know if you would agree with this or not, but I don't know that they do any one thing great. Like, you, you, you could look at the Cardinals and say, this is what they do way better than everybody else. But at the same time, I don't know that they do anything poorly. I think that's exactly it. I, I, you know, we were having this discussion last night at Left Bank Books, and we, we, were, we were talking, and uh, a man and a, uh, a Cardinals supporter uh, warily brought up the Cubs, you know, and the idea of, 
you know, this amazing offense and, you know, how are the Cardinals going to compete with it? And in essence, the idea was when you looked at the Cardinals roster, there was just an answer for everything. And that's essentially the way they operate at the front office level. Not to say that they would say it that way. They would, and, and they would never think of it in terms of we have an answer for everything. But they would think of it in terms of we need to find an answer for everything. And that is the challenge before them. And so it's reflected in the ability that they have to try to dot every I and cross every T. And it's something where uh, it, it makes the team very detail-oriented. Um, and so it's, it's actually a really nice fit intellectually between this idea of playing ball the Kissel way, which is so much about preparation and detail and the way a front office operates. And it's, it's not because of some um, effort to, um, let's say, honor George Kissel. It has to do with, well, you know, that's best business practices. And so that comes from, you know, build a wit on down. And so it's not a surprise, but it, it, it leads to, okay, right now you wouldn't say the Cardinals are the, by far the best, better than everyone else at X, Y, and Z, but it's across the board. And, and the net result can be enormous in the same way that, you know, I remember Peter Gammons once talked about Pedro Martinez, how he didn't have one pitch that was better than everyone else's pitch, but his fastball was a little bit better, and his curveball was a little bit better, and his changeup was a little bit better. And then you put that all together, and you had Pedro Martinez. Uh, speaking of, you know, having an answer sort of for everything, were you surprised by the Cardinals' offseason? And then uh, on the from the front office side, uh, how do you think that the front office is, is handling all the fallout from the Chris Correa and the, the hacking scandal? Well, look, if it's just Correa, right, and that's it, they have to replace him, but they have an analytics team in place, and now you deal with all right, whatever MLB hands down, and, and who even knows what that will be? I've been asked that you, you know a lot of different places. How do you, I mean, there's no precedent. You have this 21st century crime that, you know, you can't really cite anything that came before it. You have a relatively new commissioner. So something presumably is going to happen, but who's to say what it will be? Um, and so the Cardinals front office seems to be operating as best as they can, um, you know, when you take what comes when it comes. I think that's how you have to do it if you're the St. Louis Cardinals. Now, if the scandal had been bigger than Correa, you would have had a very different problem. You would have had two different problems. One is you would have lost more manpower from uh, a group that had already lost some just to promotions and going to other teams. But you also would have had to reconstruct absent the continuity that we talked about earlier on. 
which is to say, when the Cardinals built their information uh, services, for lack of a better phrase, you had a three-man uh, group putting it together. You had uh, Jeff Lunau, Sig Medstahl, Dan Tantrovitz. Well, Jeff and Sig are in Houston. Dan is in Oakland. Uh, but you had the people that they had trained, you know, um, Michael Gersh had trained specifically, and Chris Correa, and so on and so forth. If that group gets dismantled, then the Cardinals have to start all over again. And that would have been a much bigger problem. So it's really significant from a competitive standpoint that it really was just Correa. Um, and as far as I can tell, we know that pretty definitively. You know, the Cardinals did their own investigation. And if you want to be skeptical of that, and understand why, why you would be, the FBI was doing an investigation too. And unlike the Cardinals, the FBI had no reason um, to uh, soft pedal anything, if, if you believe the Cardinals would have. And the FBI had subpoena power and uh, you know, the ability to put people under oath. And uh, to my understanding, the investigation is over, and the only one who's been charged is Correa. And so that's, that's very significant, it seems to me, in terms of getting a sense of how much that will affect the Cardinals' front office. One of the things that uh, sort of popped out to me reading the book is, is how um, sort of adaptable the Cardinals were, especially in, in a front office sense and uh, coming all the way down or all the way up top from the owner. And I don't... I don't think that's sort of the perception of of who the Cardinals are, of sort of what they're doing. I, I think they're viewed as an organization that's sort of, uh, uh, you know, sort of stuck in their in, in their own way uh, of doing business. But I think one of the one of the 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 big example is is letting Walt Jockety go and, and hiring John Mozeliak uh, just at one year after winning the World Series because they didn't think that uh, what what Jockety was doing was the best way moving forward. But I think you can also see that with the, the recent uh, hiring of, you know, the the player development uh, slash, you know, person in charge of the draft. And you've got Jeff Luna, who's sort of the business-oriented guy. And, and then, you know, you've got Dan Kantrovitz, who mixes uh, both some player experience as well as, you know, the Ivy League education. And then, the, then you go Chris Correa, who's more of the uh, numbers guy, and then now they just moved back and uh, hired Randy Flores. You know, what's fascinating about that, too, you know, Correa was like the complete buy-in on the analytics side. So, you know, leaving aside the whole, like, crime going to jail thing, it would have been really interesting from a baseball perspective to see what that would have done. Because you're right, the Cardinals adapt in a fundamental way. And actually, it's funny, as I'm talking to you, I remember that last night I said that they had hired Randy Choate as scouting director and not Randy Flores. It's <laughs> <laughs> sort of amusing on my end. It's interchangeable uh, lefty relievers. But um, the, the reality is that the Cardinals do not have one... Um, let's say, one mold when it comes to an executive. And they don't have one mold when it comes to a player. That was one of the first places I started, was to try to push 
and and find all right, you know, what makes a Cardinals player? What makes a player specific to the Cardinals in terms of who they look to draft? What makes a player specific to the Cardinals in terms of who they look to develop? And that was a dead end because there really isn't a specific pathway to become a Cardinals player or to become a Cardinals executive other than to be willing and able to try and um, maximize whatever it is you're able to do. And uh, so I, I, I think that and that sort of dovetails with what we were just talking about, with the idea of, all right, look, it's not that they do X better than everyone else, and therefore they're less vulnerable. You know, if you think of spreading out your um, your portfolio, if you were investing in stocks, they're less vulnerable to a decline in a particular sector by virtue of paying attention to doing everything well. Yeah, and I, I think the, uh, the rotation is actually a, a really good example of that. Uh, at the top, you've got Adam Wainwright, who was uh, trade, you know, and then, you know, two contract ex- extensions, uh, you know, totaling over $100 million. And then you've got Carlos Martinez, who is a million-dollar signing from the Dominican Republic. You've got Michael Waka, who's a first-round draft pick uh, from the U.S. You've got Jaime Garcia, who is sort of that uh, diamond-in-the-rough player that, you know, you pick up at the end of the draft. And then you've got Mike Leak, who they went out and got on the, the free agent market. Uh, it's it's sort of interesting the way that they've, they've varied the players that they've gotten. Although, I mean, in the past, you know, five to ten years, I would say they've been most successful in the draft, although that seems to be changing a little bit as far as they're, they're scouting down uh, in the Dominican Republic. change things in the past should, I think, be instructive when you think about going forward. I think what you'll see the Cardinals do is that they will continue to capitalize on the opportunities when and where they have them. And so, you know, Bill and Mo are sort of constantly on the lookout for what is next. It, it's, it's sort of the, the reason why when I have conversations with Cardinals fans, it, it's sort of mind-blowing to me when I hear Cardinals fans, you know, worried or nervous. Uh, Not to say that victory is assured, because it it, it certainly isn't in baseball. And there are wildly talented teams and extremely smart front offices. And in fact, a lot of the edge the Cardinals had, uh, being able to exploit inefficiencies, have really disappeared. In a world where the Phillies are investing in analytics, you know, that has really changed. But what you do have is, you know, leadership really dedicated to winning and winning specifically by anticipating what comes next. And so I I think it's almost impossible to sort of know what the Cardinals' focus is going to be today, two years from now, because we'll see what the next two years brings. One of the sort of, I would say, more out of left field parts of of the book, and, and when I say out of left field, just something that I knew, you know, little to nothing about was uh, the the scout that you you focus a lot on in, in Charlie Gonzalez, and it's unfortunate he's not in the organization. But uh, I was just hoping you'd tell a little bit about how he came to the Cardinals and how's not not your 
typical path to to you know working in baseball? No, Charlie's Charlie's not your typical anything, and uh, he was a fascinating man to get to know. Uh, Charlie Gonzalez uh, spent most of his life bouncing around uh, a lot of different jobs, you know, trying out real estate. He spent years just surfing and working odd jobs to make ends meet. Uh, you know, he, he had a son who uh, played baseball, and he found himself uh, becoming, you know, essentially addicted to the game of baseball from the coaching side of things. He always loved the game. And uh, from there started uh, providing informal advice uh, to uh, major league teams uh, about, you know, area players. And then it became semi-formal. And then he uh, was a part-time scout with the San Francisco Giants and eventually got the opportunity to uh, scout for the St. Louis Cardinals. And I think it's fair to say that if we weren't in a situation where Jeff Lunell was open to different experiences in terms of hiring, I don't know that you'd have seen Charlie uh, as a scout, a full-time scout with the St. Louis Cardinals. But you definitely, if not for first Jeff and then uh, and then Dan Kantrovitz believing in Charlie and uh, rewarding him uh, by picking players that he that he felt strongly about. Uh, Kevin Segrist being a great example, a guy who no one basically thought was ever going to be a major league pitcher, and Charlie was convinced he's not just going to be a major league pitcher, but he's been throwing the upper nineties, and uh, got to see that proven correct. Uh, you know, with the Cardinals, if they hadn't believed in him and given him the opportunity to get his players drafted we wouldn't have gotten to see just how good he was at his job. But every, everything about the way Charlie talks, he talks a mile a minute, he wears, you know, these these loud Hawaiian shirt, a loud red print shirt, you know, everything about Charlie is big. He's this big, ruddy-faced man uh, who knows more about every single player than you could possibly imagine. He understood about the player's motivation. He understood about what the player could do off the field. He knew the player's moms and dads. And, and that's so important when you are working in scouting and play, you know, in, on the draft side, when you really need to know within, a, you know, as little as possible range, what it's going to take to sign that player. And when you have a draft budget, that is hard and fast, that is set by Major League Baseball, you better get it right. And Charlie was better at identifying those things early and seeing which players were worth it, which players were going to provide surplus value. Uh, it, it made a huge difference for the Cardinals for years. What are the things that the, the Cardinals sort of seem on the I don't know, front office player acquisition side is that they're a bit risky? risk averse and I think that's something that has more or less helped them over over the years but uh, in the front office it seemed like they were willing to to take more risks and uh, you know and importantly they were willing to to learn from from their mistakes uh, especially when it came to you know sort of orchestrating uh, how players uh, would be drafted and which players to draft and and how the system how the system all got set up and um, if you could comment on that and then maybe just uh, 
say a little bit about what what it was like to sort of be in in the Cardinals draft room? Well, let me answer the second question first, uh, which is to say it was so cool. It was such an interesting experience, and just as a lifelong baseball fan, to be there as it was happening. Uh, was just a remarkable thing, and to see the the way the Cardinals were interacting, you know, in, in order to determine who they would pick, and then immediately, you know, if you think of it like this assembly line, right, player gets picked, and then there's match later with Gary LaRock, and they're looking at video, and they're trying to determine, all right, where are we sending this player? What is this player going to do for us this particular year? You know, and conversing with Kim Levesque and. How often did that pitcher throw, and do you need that pitcher throwing X amount of innings? And I mean, it was just remarkable. It was a, a, the fundamentals of a baseball team in action. So that was that was wonderful, and I loved it. Um, the idea of being risk averse. Well, let me put it to you this way: the person we just talked about, Charlie Gonzalez. You think of it in terms of, you know, all right, Charlie is pounding the table. You know, to use the, the cliche about scouts for this player, for that player, and to be risk averse would be to not um, to not take his players and to rely, you know, purely on the stats, purely on the aggregation of scouting reports, and so on and so forth. But here's the thing that Jeff put in place that is really smart: the scouts versus stats idea is nonsense in a lot of ways, but it's especially nonsense because what he put into place was a means of evaluating the scouts. So suddenly you don't have to just rely on, all right, you know what, that scout brought us, uh, you know, Albert Pujols X number of years ago. we got to trust his judgment. You can say, all right, this scout's putting a dollar value on 100 players, some of whom we don't even take in the draft, right? And how close does he come to being right when you convert those dollar figures to runs created for a particular team. And from there, you're able to use statistics to evaluate scouts. And the scouts who get it right more often, you know, you could say it's stats versus the eye test. No, not at all. It is stats to evaluate a series of eye tests and using data accurately to be able to say who's going to have the next eye test and get it right. And so I think it's really significant to be able to see that combination in play. And again, it's, you know, to, don't mean to go back to the subtitle of the book, but it is how they combined tradition and money ball. That was a really significant way they did so. Yeah, and, and money ball is, you know, it's distorted over the years, but the, the most important thing is to get ahead and to stay ahead, and that's something that the the Cardinals have done a very good job of over the years. And you're talking about you know trying to figure out a specific type of player that they're they're drafting. I think you know in it seemed for a long time that the Cardinals were looking for you know pitchers who could throw a sinker and get ground balls, and uh, lately it's been more athletic pitchers who can throw a changeup. And and I think the that that has something to do with sort of uh, being able to to project the the success onto the field a little bit more if you can if you can find you know those those slight edges but before everybody else does and 
You know, in baseball, you don't even have to find it before everybody else does. You, you can be third or fourth and uh, still do all right. But, uh, you know, if you're at the tail end, then, then you're, really, you're really going to struggle. by virtue of putting their own dollar values on particular players is, you know, get the players that not only they liked the most, you know, and sort of this idea that there's an objective truth with uh, each player worth X amount, but very significantly the players that they think they are able to do the most with. Uh, so Michael Watt is a great example of this, of a guy they got late in the first round of the draft. And Waka is a guy who, when he, I'm sure you remember this, when he was winning the LCS MVP in 2013, I think 29 other teams on MLB.com had a story that was like, why didn't X team have Michael Waka in the rotation when they had the opportunity to draft him? But it wasn't just a question of Waka being a very good pitcher, although he certainly was a very good prospect when Kantrovitz made the selection. Once they got him, he was uniquely uh, able to incorporate what Tim Levesque brought uh, to his game, uh, bringing tilt to the uh, to the delivery, uh, which is something you see in the downward plane on his fastball, something that Levesque learned from Brent Strom now with the Astros. And so I would argue that Michael Walken, and it's possible to know this for sure, but I would argue that Michael Walken is not the same pitcher that he is today if a different team drafted him. And so that that's very significant in terms of, like you said, you know, their ability later on to be able to get players. And obviously, as you get later into the draft, it's um, a smaller margin, and there's, uh, let's say, less reward. But I, I think that sort of sets the tone for the way in which they do it. One thing that uh, you know, I was a little bit curious about. Um, you know, you talk about George Kissel and Red Chandies and just their their tenure with the Cardinals organization and and how long that they've been around and who they learned from. And I was just wondering if you thought that uh, Jose Okendo might be sort of that next figure in the organization. He's been passed over for for a few manager jobs uh, and. Uh, there was an article in the Post Dispatch that was a little bit, you know, bittersweet. I would say that it seemed like he had resigned himself to not getting a managerial gig, but that he loved being with the Cardinals. He very well could be, and I would say Okendo is more red than George. If you think about the model, um, Jose is almost, you know, the, the the major league side of things in a way that Red has been for the longest time and continues to be. And I, I mean, in a way that just sort of blows my mind, he's 93 years old and absolutely a significant part of the way the Cardinals think about things on a day-to-day basis. But, um, you know, George, he cared about the minor leaguers so much and actually wanted to be the first voice they heard. He, he particularly liked the young minor league players. And so the George Kissel equivalent in this organization right now, although he would um, he would deny it up and down, 
out of a, out of a sense of modesty is Steve Turkov, who has now been with the organization for 35 years, um, was hired as a coach at the end of his playing career at the urging slash demanding of George Kissel uh, back in the mid-1980s. And it is not by accident that Steve Turco manages the Gulf Coast League Cardinals, that when the Cardinals have the very youngest and you could argue the most vulnerable of their prospects, Steve Turco is the one they send them to. You spent a lot of time covering the Mets and the Wilpons, and I'm just wondering if that sort of colored your view of uh, ownership in general and and what um, sort of what your expectations were for the Cardinals and what you actually ended up getting. So I didn't go in with the expectation that the Cardinals would in any way relate to the way the Mets operated. Um, I, uh, I did, I absolutely enjoyed being able to cover an organization that from ownership on down operated in a way that I could understand, that made intellectual sense, and was based around baseball and the baseball business rather than baseball acting as something ancillary for something else. Um, so, you know, without getting to into the Mets side of things, uh, that was a relief, that was a joy, to be able to cover a baseball team like a baseball team. And um, it, it was remarkable, though, in the midst of doing things. I, I don't think that either Bill DeWitt or Fred Wilpon is representative of the uh, median MLB ownership. I think we're seeing two polls, and so from that perspective, uh, it was enjoyable to be at the other end of things. Uh, you uh, don't just cover uh, baseball, and you recently started uh, at Excel Sports, and it's a site that, that specializes in um, covering women's sports, something that, that you've done a lot of uh, over, the, over the years. And I was just wondering um, what it's like to sort of cover players and, and teams that maybe don't have the the type of national exposure that, that maybe uh, is warranted? It gives a new and a more significant responsibility, it feels like, uh, to me. Uh, I feel responsible in a way that I don't when I'm covering the World Series or the NBA playoffs um, to get it um, as completely as I possibly can. You know, I, I had this moment during the World Series, which was a pleasure and, and will never cease to be a pleasure. I, I am deeply in love with the game of baseball, always will be, and that I get to cover the game is beyond amazing and will always be. Uh, it was about one thirty in the morning. It was the night the Mets had lost in Game 5, and I'm there with David Wright, and, you know, about 20 other reporters. And I had this thought, not for the first time, um, that if I walked away, if I was not doing that, um, David Wright's story would be out there. And I tried to tell it in an original way and in a different way, and I believe I did. But people knew about David Wright anyway, and people knew about, you know, what he was about and, and a lot of things about David Wright. And that same month, I went to cover the WNBA playoffs at Madison Square Garden. And 
Uh, it was a deciding game in the Eastern Conference Finals. Indiana Fever were in town, and Tamika Catchings, Indiana Fever were, were in town. And a lot of people know Catchings as sort of a distant name. She's not someone who's at the center of American culture. Uh, those who do know her a lot of times talk about um, her charity work and who she is as a person, and she is a remarkable person. What people don't tend to talk about is the fact that Tamika Catchings, if you go by wins above replacement, is about 20% more valuable than anyone else in the history of the WNBA. She's that good of a player. She's not a player you need to rely on intangibles to come to appreciate the, the stature right there. She's that good. And I went to talk to her and to do a big story about what might have been her last playoff game, but instead turned into a vintage catching performance that propelled the Indiana Fever, who were not as good as Liberty on paper and in terms of raw talent, to the WNBA Finals. And it was me, and it was two video people from the WNBA. And that was it. And if I wasn't there to tell that story and go long on Tamika Catchings, nobody was going to tell that story. Now, in the grand scheme of things, um, how important is that? Well, I think it's, it's, it depends on how important you think sports is. And if sports matter to you, and, and they do, and they matter to me, and they matter to millions and millions of people. Well, telling the stories of the greatest to play the sport, and some who are not so great, the, the mediocre, you know, the, the, the teams and the players and the storylines, it's something that doesn't happen nearly enough on the women's side for no real good reason. And so when the opportunity Excel came up, the chance to tell those stories regularly, uh, it was uh, it was really a dream come true because, frankly, it was something I had been wanting to do myself for a very long time. And so, seeing uh, seeing Excel try to put this into practice was really significant. And I, I put out a story today about Stephanie Dolson. Stephanie Dolson is a really interesting player, really interesting person for the Washington Mystics. And she was at USA Basketball Camp. She was probably the 15th most popular person to talk to at USA Basketball Camp. Um, it probably would have been difficult for me to sell a Stephanie Dolson story uh, you know, to various outlets. Um, but Excel Sports, I was able to go along and really talk about her story. And uh, that is a welcome opportunity and something... I intend to take advantage of for as long as I possibly can. Well, I think that uh, you do really great work, and uh, like I said, I, I can't recommend uh, your book enough. Um, it really, you know, takes a an interesting look at, at the Cardinals' front office, and and that that we don't really get to see very often. And uh, uh, unless there's Anything else? Uh, I mean, I, I think we, we covered it. Is there anything else that, uh, I guess you can follow uh, Howard at, at Howard Megdahl. Um, uh, but, uh, can, I, can I just say about what you just said, it, it, it comes down to, I think it's the reason why the organization was so open um, about, you know, for, let's be clear about things positive and negative and arguably more open about the negative than the positive. There's a, a Midwestern modesty to them uh, that I can absolutely tell you is genuine. 
Um, but the, the book, and, and the reason I'm happiest that the book exists is I really wanted to capture what I think is a significant moment in baseball history and the fact that the Cardinals did what they did when they did it will go a long way towards, I think, determining the way Major League Baseball operates in the 21st century. When you, when you go back and you look at the way the baseball industry as a whole looked at the Oakland Athletics, it was with the attempt of looking at it, treating it like an outlier. And it was easy to do. You know, Oakland was not in the mainstream of baseball in a variety of ways, and this was just some experiment. But when Bill DeWitt and the Cardinals did it, you could not dismiss it anymore, and it really expedited and changed the way people looked at analytics in baseball in the 21st century. Yeah, I, th- I think that you have you know sort of the battle or a quasi battle with stats and scouts, and this is the one case where everybody wins, and uh, I think that that really comes through in your book. All right. Well, I uh, want to thank uh, Howard for, for coming on uh, the show. I, I recommend everyone go buy and, and read his, his book. It's called The Cardinal's Way. And um, I think uh, that will just about do it. All right. We're done.